truth that you and you would use to instill within us, Lord, the character of Christ, uh, the embodiment of your will and your purpose in our life, that it would change the way we think and change the way we live. Pray, Father, that you would uh, just use this vessel ultimately to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Take a sip of water. Well, as you know, Paul has been making this argument in his text here in Romans that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what it is that ultimately changes the heart and mind of a human being. And that in that gospel, God is revealing to us his power, he is revealing to us his righteousness, and he is revealing to us his wrath. In essence, God is revealing to us his character, who he is in the gospel message through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I, as Baptists and believers in Christ, understand when Paul makes statements that he says to us that, no man will be justified by the works of the law. And we'd give a hearty amen, right? We would say, that is true. I cannot be made right before God by trying to do what the law requires of me to do. But then, at least in my mind, a question arises when Paul makes statements like he does in verse 13 and says, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law that are seen to be righteous before the Lord. And so at least in my mind, I have to think to myself, what is Paul talking about? How can I reconcile those two ideas and those two concepts? Because I think as Baptists in general, we tend to be all too often a little bit too antinomian a little bit too much against the concept of God's law, okay? And so I thought today, because Paul brings this up in his text, that we'd do another one of those infamous excursions that I like to do, and we'd drill down on this issue of the law of God and how it relates to the concept of the gospel and how it impacts our lives today. And it's really significant to Paul because if you just take a gander at chapter 2, you'll find out that Paul mentions the law 19 times in chapter 2. So the law is pretty important in this conversation that Paul is having. And even beyond that, in the book of Romans, Paul mentions the law over or right at 50 times in the book of Romans. So it's a very important aspect to Paul's presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we got to reconcile some things as it relates to our firm belief that God's word tells us that, as Paul reminds us, there's not a single person who's going to be made righteous by the works of the law. But at the same time, Paul reminds us, it is only those who are doers of the law that will, see, uh, that will be seen to be righteous before holy God. So how do we reconcile these two things? Because our tendency is to say, law, bad. Grace, good, right? Law, Old Testament. Grace, New Testament. Well, there's some problems with those statements because 
Paul tells us quite clearly, if you, when we get to chapter 3, we're going to find out in verse 31, Paul says, makes this statement or asks this question, do we therefore nullify the law? And God, uh, Paul uses this term in Romans that uh, he uses several times, and we'll become familiar with it. Uh, 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 he says, meganoite in the Greek. May it never be. God forbid is the idea behind that word. We do not nullify the law in our proclaiming of this gospel of grace. So why is Paul bringing up this issue of the law? And how is it that you and I can reconcile what seems to be this contradiction between the idea that we can't work our way to heaven? It's all by grace in Christ alone through faith alone, right? But we are still as believers expected to live in light of this law of God. As a matter of fact, the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 19, verse 7, I believe, that the law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. Some translations read the King James, I think it says converting the soul. And then Jesus has a take on this idea of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. When you begin in chapter 5, uh, about verse 17, Jesus begins to, his argument on that sermon, uh, which goes all the way to chapter 7 in Matthew, that he didn't come to abolish the law, that he came to fulfill the law. The implication is that the law is fulfilled in Christ. But then he goes on to make uh, another statement in that text that implies that those who will inherit the kingdom of God are those who live a life that is congruent with the law of God. There's this idea of a kingdom ethic, which is couched in the construct of God's law. And he also says, hey, if you think the law is disappearing, then you have it all wrong because not, depending on your translation, uh, not one jot or tittle, or what, not one iota or dot, if you have a more modern translation, will disappear from the law before God finishes his work in this time. So the law is significant even today in our lives. So how do we reconcile those things? Well, we're, we're going to look at this from about five or six headings. But the first thing that you and I need to do, I think, is we need to understand what the structure of the law is so that we can get a kind of a, a better view of what Paul is talking about when he relates to this idea of the law of God. And I think there's so much misunderstanding about the law of God as it relates to what God was doing in the Old Testament and how it carries over to the New Testament. The first thing that I think we need to do is get just a little grasp of what God was doing in the Old Testament and the concept of the law. So the law, as it relates to Israel, because Israel's God's chosen people, he was, he was God's covenant, they were God's covenant people. Uh, and God, in that covenant, constructed for them a framework in which they were to live in relation to him and to distinguish themselves from the rest of the world. And so Israel's laws related to that covenant that God had with them was really broken up into three categories. First, and again, these are in no particular order. 
First, you had this idea of the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law had primarily to do with how Israel came about worshiping the Lord, the feast and the festivals and the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices and all of those kinds of things were related primarily under this umbrella of the ceremonial law of Israel. Now we know that when Christ came onto the scene, just like Jesus said in Matthew chapter five, he came to fulfill the law in all of its aspects ultimately, but in particular in this concept of the ceremonial law because Jesus fulfilled all the sacrifices, right? Jesus fulfilled all the concepts behind the festivals. Jesus was the embodiment of what God was doing in the ceremonial law of Israel. And so in that sense, this ceremonial law, this aspect of the law has been fulfilled in Christ and it's not binding on those who are our believers in Christ today. And the second aspect of the law is the concept of the civil aspect of the law. And the civil aspect of the law were, uh, was the judicial construct where if a woman was caught in adultery, she was brought before them and, you know, uh, she and the, and the guy who was with her, they were stoned to death. Those kinds of things in that civil law. Some of it had to do with, with the food laws that they were required to abstain from certain things. They, they could have some things and not other things. Well, those were civil constructs. A lot of that had to do with, with health, uh, for them, but a lot of that again had to do with to separate them from those who were in the pagan world and the practices of the pagan world. And that was part of the theocracy that God had set up to govern Israel. All of the tithing concepts that we read about in the Old Testament were part of the construct of this civil law. We have taxes today in America. If you want to get down to it, their tithe structure in the Old Testament was primarily a kind of tax structure. It was to fund uh, the, the kingdom. It was to fund, uh, take care of the, the priest who had no inheritance in the land. It was to take care of the poor that were in the land. And, and most Israelites probably gave at least uh, 23% of their, uh, pro, their, their, their increase, if you will, in, in this concept of a tithe. And we can talk about that another day. It's not, not, the, uh, not the topic of today, but uh, those civil type laws, those have passed away with the nation of Israel in the sense of uh, not being binding on those who are believers or Gentiles. And we know that. Why? Because of the Jerusalem Council that came uh, down in, in uh, the first century whenever uh, the apostles went and had this conversation about how Gentiles should live and act in relation to how Jews should live and act when it comes to the kingdom of Christ and coming to faith in Christ. And the ultimate conclusion of that council was that none of these things are binding on those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so that leaves us with the third aspect of the law, which is the moral law, which we know as the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, and so this moral law, you and I need to understand that the moral law transcends every culture and every nation. It is binding on all of humanity in perpetuity. okay? It does not and has not gone away. 
And this, in fact, I think is what Paul is talking about when he brings up this construct of the law of God. Why? Because that's what he's saying when he's talking about these Jews who are being instructed in it and teaching it. What does Jesus deal with in Matthew chapter 5 when he, and, and, and through 7 with the Sermon on the Mount? He deals with this aspect of the moral law. And that's why he says at the, at the thesis statement in, in Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 and following that, hey, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he deals with what is the misconception of the moral law in the first century, and he helps us understand the true heart of God's moral law. And really, all of these statements, in my opinion, point to this one single solitary fact, that although we have found faith and grace in Christ alone, right, that the moral law is still binding on all of humanity today. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, nine out of 10 of the 10 commandments are mentioned specifically in the New Testament. And the implication is that they're still binding on how we live in this world. And we'll unpack that a little bit more as we, uh, as we go along. Paul gives us a, a good parallel to this idea of what these are as we get through uh, the, the book of Romans. But hopefully you, you get that little small structure of the law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. What Paul's talking about is the moral aspect of the law, the Ten Commandments. So that leads to the next thing. What, what, is this, what are the statutes? And we, you know, I, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but uh, we need to understand what the Ten Commandments are, right? Other than something that's on a plaque somewhere in your house or, or people are trying to tear down from all the government places in the world. Uh, the Ten Commandments are ten uh, codes, if you will, that God set down for Israel in particular. He gave them to Israel. But those codes are binding on all of humanity. Uh, they were binding on, that's why God judged the pagan nations of, of the day when Israel was, uh, came on the scene. God was judging them because they were not living up to the character of God as represented in the moral law. And you and I need to understand this, this second thing about the, the statutes of the moral law. There is no arbitrary outside construct of morality that God has adopted and God lives up to. You and I need to understand that this moral code that we're about to talk about is inherent in the character of God. It exhibits the character and morality that is inherent in the person, the being of God. He is the holiness code, if you will. And so here's the thing about it. If we think that we can just arbitrarily dismiss the, 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 the moral law of God, then what we are saying is that we have dismissed the character of God itself. Because how, here you go, just get into it. There are two tables of the moral code. Right, the first y'all, everybody's seen Charlton Heston, right, with the two tablets. There are two tables to the moral code. Am I getting that old that nobody's seen that movie before? <laughs> there are two tablets to this code. The, on the first tablet, in general, most people believe the first tablet had four laws, and those four laws relate to our relationship with God. And you can find them in, in a couple of places, in particular Exodus chapter twenty. They're in Deuteronomy as well. But you know, the first one is. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Do you think that because Christ has come on the scene, who is the second person of the Trinity, that God has just abandoned that concept altogether? No. We are still bound by the idea that we should have no other gods, but the one true and living God is represented in the person, Jesus Christ. What about idolatry? You shall not commit adultery. What's the very first thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1? When you get to verse 18, why is God's wrath being poured out on humanity? Because they know who God is and they willfully suppress the truth of God and they began to make idols of the created uh, construct, right? They make idols of wood and stone. And they're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And you say, that doesn't apply to me because I don't have a little statue in my house. You remember when we were in that section, we talked about that. The most egregious idolatry in human history is, being on, is, is on display today. And that is the idolatry of self, right? Isn't that what's happening in our world today? We are saying that we are gods unto ourselves. How do I know that? Because I say, or we say as a population, that, hey, we can disregard God's created order. Marriage is not between man and woman for a lifetime. It's not about bringing about holy and righteous offspring. Marriage is about how I feel and whoever I love, and I can marry whoever and whatever I want to marry, right? In that idolatry of self, we're saying we're God to ourselves. We're denying the, the construct that God established in creation. Same thing with transgenderism, right? And all the other alphabet uh, letters in the alphabet mafia. You and I as a culture, we are saying that God, if he exists, got it wrong. Because although my biology says I'm one thing, I feel like I'm another thing. Therefore, I am establishing myself as my own God and stating what I want to be rather than what the creator intended for and created me to be. If that's not idolatry, I don't know what is. So idolatry, you think God is against that nowadays? No, he's not against that. Taking the Lord's name in vain, right? And again, we could debate exactly what that means, but the minimalist idea of it is abusing God's name in general, right? Making oaths in God's name that you never intend to keep, right? In our society, we add, uh, you know, using the Lord's name in vain in curse words. That's probably just a small part of the idea. How about how you live your life as a believer? You proclaim to be the follower of Jesus Christ. You proclaim to be the one who has given your heart and your life and you bowed your knee to the will of God. And then you go out into this world and you live a life of debauchery. Is that not misusing the name of the Lord? So you think God's against that today? I don't think so. Why? Because it talks about his character and who, is, who he is. This is how God intends for us to understand his holiness, right? And then you have the fourth one on that law, which there's some debate over, right? You got the seven-day Adventists that still hold to the Sabbath day. You know, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That, that, that's something we have to explain, don't we? Why is it that you don't meet on Saturday and, st- and rather you meet on Sunday? Well, the Bible makes it clear for us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of that Sabbath rest, right? He became that Sabbath rest for us and that the church 
helps us understand that when we come to worship on Sunday, what have we done? We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, we had the one day uh, in April where we celebrated Easter Sunday, the resurrection of Christ. But why is it that we meet every Sunday? Because every Sunday is the resurrection day of Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating. And you and I need to understand why we're not bound to meet on the Sabbath day. We are still honoring the Lord by having a holy day that we set aside to worship the Lord. And incidentally, the, 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 command, the fourth commandment is the only one that's not explicitly mentioned in relation to Christianity in the New Testament. And so I think there's argument for us to say that while we don't meet on Saturday, we still honor the essence of the Sabbath day because we set aside a day that we come together to worship the Lord. You think the Lord doesn't want us to come together and worship him anymore? We're not bound by that? Well, yes, we are. God intends for all of us, all of creation, God intends for them to worship him. And those who refuse to do that, they're in rebellion against God. And therefore, God's wrath is being revealed upon them. Then you have the second table of the law. The second table of the law It's the horizontal aspect of how we treat one another and how we are to relate to our fellow human beings, right? You know, the uh, don't murder. That's a pretty big one, isn't it? You think God's against that today? He says, oh, it's okay. Go ahead. You know, we're fine. You, You got Jesus. Don't worry about that anymore. No, God still holds that same standard for you and for me. What about honor your father and your mother? You think God's abandoned that one because Christ has came on the scene and we're under great the grace in Christ? No. I think he still intends for us to honor our father and our mother. What about not committing adultery? Hey, you got grace, man. You can go sleep with whoever you want to, whether they're married or not. You think God's okay with that? No, he's not, right? He doesn't want us to live like that because it goes against his holy character. What about stealing? Take whatever you want. No big deal, right? You think God's against that today? No, he's not, he's not in favor. Or you think he's in favor of that day? No, he's not in favor of stealing today. He still holds those standards, and we're still obligated as individuals and human beings to live in light of this law. What about bearing false witness? You know, we say don't lie uh, in a catchphrase. But any form of bearing false witness against your neighbor, you think God's okay with that now today? Just go out and make up whatever you want to make up. No, he's not okay with that today. You think he's abandoned it? No, he has not abandoned it. What about you shall not covet? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's property. Whatever it is, you think God just said, ah, man, covet whatever you want. No, it's absurd, isn't it? It's absurd for us to even think that way. Why? Because if God abandons this, then he is saying, I was wrong in the Old Testament. I was wrong from the very beginning. We are abandoning the character of God if we say that the moral code has no bearing on life today. That is an unbiblical heresy that we must get out of our head. We can maintain the truth that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, but still understand that when we come to faith in Christ, that God, for the first time, has given us, with the person of the Holy Spirit, the ability to even live this moral code. Why is it that you think that Peter in his epistle says that we are quoting the Old Testament Leviticus? Why is it that you think he says, be holy for he is holy? 
Because God expects us to live in a particular way when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And secondly, how do we know what God's holiness looks like? Well, God's given us a good way to know that, hasn't he? And it's called the moral law because it exhibits the holiness and the character of God. And he expects us to live in light of this moral code that God has given to us, right? Jesus even summarized this, didn't he? You remember in uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 22, about verse 37, there were some folks come up to Jesus and they says, says, say to Jesus, uh, Master, what, what do you think is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, I think the greatest, and again, he's quoting from the Old Testament because that was their Bible, right? He says... The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So what was Jesus saying in that text? Was Jesus saying, well, we, we've abandoned the law. It has no bearing on us today. No, what was Jesus doing? He says, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? I believe the greatest commandment is the first four laws on the Ten Commandments or the table of the law. Love God with every fiber of your being. Love God rightly. That's really what the first four commandments are talking about, isn't it? And then Jesus says, I think a close second are the last six. Love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the reality. We can never love our neighbor as ourself until we have come into a right loving relationship with God. And then Jesus makes a statement at the end of that text in Matthew. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, Everything that God has been saying to you, revealing to you, teaching you in the Old Testament are couched in these two commandments, which are a summation of the moral law of God. So the linchpin of God's revelation of himself to humanity is linked to this moral code that we call the Ten Commandments. And so you want to tell me that the Ten Commandments, the moral code of God, has no bearing on our life today as followers of Christ? Then you must be reading a different Bible than I am reading today. Because the one who wrote the moral code says to me that the greatest commandment is to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor with yourself. The one who wrote the moral code says to me from his word that if your righteousness doesn't exceed the misunderstanding of the moral code of the Pharisees, then you're not going to see the kingdom of God. The one who wrote the moral code inspired the apostle Paul to tell me in Romans chapter 2 and verse 13, it's not the hearers of the law who are going to be seen to be righteous, but the doers of the law who will be seen to be righteous before God. You must be reading something different than I got before me. God 
has not abandoned the law. Again, just so you haven't forgotten and you won't go out and say, this preacher's telling me I've got to live by the law to be saved. I want to remind you, I am in agreement with Paul, with Paul when he says that no flesh, no man will be uh, come righteous by the works of the law. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But I'm also in agreement with Paul when he says that a person who comes to faith in Christ will live according to the moral law of God. Because it is the evidence that we are followers of Christ, that our lives have been changed, that we no longer live like those who are in darkness. That's why Paul says in other places when he gives those vice lists that you were once like this, but now you are no longer like this because you're in Christ. There ought to be a change in our life. If your Christian faith does not impact the way you think and the way you live and the decisions you make in life, then there's something wrong with the faith that you call Christian. There's no concept in God's word where we can live like we want to live and claim to be a follower of Christ. It does not add up. We are called to be holy as he, or he is holy. And he gives us the picture of his holiness in the moral code. So, what is the significance of this moral code for you and for me as it relates to our understanding of God and how it impacts society? Well, again, I stole this from Dr. Stephen Lawson who stole this from R.C. Sproul, who probably stole it from someone else uh, when he wrote about it. But he gives five things when he deals with this idea of the, the moral law of God and how it impacts our life and our thinking. And we've already talked a little bit about this in a cursory way, but this will give you a bullet point list of, of truths, I guess, to help you understand it in a more clear way. First, the moral law reveals the holiness of God really already talked about that. How do we know what God's holiness is when Peter tells us that we are to be holy as he is holy? The only way I can know the holiness of God is to read his word. And in his word, he gives me this picture of what holiness looks like that emanates from his character. So it reveals to us the holiness of God. The second thing Paul makes very clear in his writings in Romans, Galatians, and other places the, the moral law reveals the sinfulness of man, right? The moral law is like a mirror to you and me. We go look at that mirror. We <coughs> measure ourselves against the reflection of the moral law. And I'm telling you, it doesn't take me long to realize that I have failed, right? I don't measure up to the moral law. It helps me to understand that I am guilty before a holy, righteous God. Paul's going to remind us of that in Romans chapter 3 in a very powerful way. I don't measure up. I have fallen short. That's what the law does for me. It teaches me that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And then the third thing that the moral law does, it's our tutor. Listen to this. To lead us to Christ. It really kind of dovetails with what we just talked about. It's like the old preachers used to say, you got to get a man lost before you can get him saved. The law helps us understand that we are lost, 
We do need someone outside of ourselves to help us if we're going to be able to stand in the day of judgment that is coming. And that someone is Jesus Christ. So the law is our tutor that shows us we are sinners and it points us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who fulfilled the the holiness code, the one who fulfilled the moral law, the one who stood in our law place on Calvary and bore under the wrath of God because of our guilt that is shown to us by the law. It drives us to our knees to help us understand that we need to come before God and repent and change our mind about who we are because we think we're pretty good, right? Don't tell me you don't. We think we're pretty good, right? Even before we come to Christ, I'm a pretty good old person, right? I'm better than so-and-so down the road, right? I'll do what they do. So I ought to be okay with the Lord. But guess what? If you measure yourself against the holy code of God's moral law, you'll find out that you have failed. We can't measure ourselves to our neighbor. We've got to measure ourselves to God's standard. And when we do that, we'll see that we are guilty, and that will drive us to our knees. It'll drive us to the person, Jesus Christ. Then, fourthly, the, law, the moral law is a restraint to evil in society. And you might think, well, wait a minute, because I still see evil in society. Well, yes, we do. But one example that I read that helped understand this is, here's the thing. If you and I drive down 60, uh, you know, I-65, I-65's got a speed limit generally of 70 miles an hour in most places, right? Well, how many drive exactly 70 miles miles an hour down I-65? I know I don't, right? You know, usually I'm 75. If I'm feeling really frisky, you know, I might push it up a little further than that, but... Uh, Most of us will go at least five miles over the speed limit. But here's the point. If there was not a speed limit, if there was not a sign that told us what the limit was, what would we do? We'd probably be like the Audubon, right? We'd just do whatever we wanted to do. Well, here's the thing. What did Paul already tell us in chapter 2? He's already told us in chapter 2 that those Gentiles, when they do what the law requires of them, it is evidence that that law has been written upon their heart, right? When they do by nature, God has written upon our heart and our conscience the construct of what is right and what is wrong. So in that sense, the moral law limits the amount of wickedness that men show in their daily lives. Some people call it common grace. God in his common grace has given to all men the general concept of what is right and what is wrong, and our conscience bears witness against us. Now, does does that mean we we can't sear our conscience and go beyond our conscience and do things that are blatantly against the, uh, the moral code of God? Well, yeah, we can do that, right? We, I am evidence of that, right? I don't have to talk about you. I am evidence that I can go against God's law and break it. So all of us can do that, but it restrains humanity, even those who are not followers of Christ. This inherent moral construct that God has written on the hearts of humanity limits the amount of evil that people can do. Can you imagine if there was no conscience that God had given people based on this moral code, the amount of evil that would be portrayed in this world? You know, I was just reading the other night, because one of the things that you and I need to understand, and, and 
I think we have just been lulled to sleep about it today because we think there's no way to do anything about it. And it's about the issue of abortion, right? And, and I was thinking, and this is just me now, not to get too political about things, but you know, I was thinking when Black Lives Matters was was going on, you know, and, and they were standing up about uh, you know the, the egregious things that happened to uh, black people in America, and whatever your belief on that is immaterial. The, the point is, if people were really concerned specifically about black lives. Why are those same people not shouting from the rooftops and standing before abortion clinics because the majority of the abortions in 2019, over almost 630,000 abortions in this country in, in 2019, and the majority, majority of them were by, uh, from Non, the way they said it in their study, non-Hispanic black women. Man, that's one of the most egregious tragedies to black lives in this country. Why aren't they shouting about that? Why aren't they shouting about black-on-black crime in places like Chicago and things like that? Not just a pinpoint to the race, but that, that was the sentiment behind this movement, Right? Why is it? What do you think we would do as human beings if there was no inherent concept of right and wrong that God has put in the heart of humanity? What do you think we would be capable of? We've seen glimpses of it with, with, the, with the big sinners, right? Like the, the Stalins and the Hitlers. What if God hadn't res- put that restraint in all of humanity? What would we look like as a people? The moral law of God limits the sin in society. And then the final one, the moral law of God reveals the will of God. It shows us who he is, what his character is. And even more than that, it shows us how he intends for us to live every day of our life. So I hope that you with me will put an end to this heretical concept of antinomianism that is rampant among evangelical believers today. Again, not to, not to beat a dead horse, I understand the Bible says by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I cannot work my way to heaven. I, I will never be found righteous by doing the acts of the law. But by golly, when I come to faith in Christ, God expects me to live in light of his holiness, which is revealed to me in the moral code of God. And we'll, we'll end with this today. Two things, the necessity of the moral law as it relates to evangelism and Christian living. I don't know if you've ever heard, uh, I know you've probably heard of him, but uh, or it's the way of the master, right? You heard of that, uh, that organization? They have, in my estimation, probably one of the best evangelistic strategies that is out there. And it actually uses God's law to show to people that we don't measure up, that we are guilty before God. You see, that's something we've lost in our concept of the gospel today. That's something we've lost in our understanding of evangelism today. 
God does love me and God does have a wonderful plan for my life, right? He does. But why is it that human beings need to be saved? Because they are guilty despots. They are rebels against God. And God's going to pour out his wrath on all of humanity in the latter days. There's coming a day, if you were in Sunday school this morning, Thessalonians chapter 5, there is coming a day when God is going to judge this world. And if you have not repented and placed your faith in Christ, you stand guilty before God right now. The Apostle John says in John chapter 3 and verse 36 that if you have not come to faith in Christ, that God's wrath abides on you right now. You're one heartbeat away from God casting you into outer darkness. That's why people need to get saved because God's going to judge this world and he's going to pour out his judgment on all those people who are rebellious against him. And so when people come to faith in Christ, they're being saved from the wrath of God. And people don't understand that today. Because we don't preach that today. We don't teach that today. We don't evangelize like that today. And so people really don't understand why they need Jesus. Maybe he's just an accessory that'll help me along in my life, right? My life's pretty good, so I can add Jesus to it, and maybe it'll be a little bit better. No, your life is rotten, and you're rebellious against God. And if you don't bow your knee to Jesus Christ, you're going to stand before God in judgment, and he's going to find you guilty and cast you into the lake of fire. And God's moral code proves that to you. Because all of us are liars and thieves and adulterers at heart, right? We're all guilty before God. That's why Paul can write what he says in Romans, right? For there is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why he writes those things. To point us to the fact that we need a Savior. And when we evangelize, we need to help people understand that. And then... Finally, and I'll try not to beat this one again, but I've already talked about it throughout the whole sermon. Just hear what John Piper says about this Christian living uh, as it relates to the moral law of God. And then we'll close. John Piper says, Obeying the law is not the basis of our being in God's favor. It is the evidence that we are trusting Christ and united to him. That's why James can say faith without works is dead. If you're a follower of Christ, it will impact how you live today. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the things you do. If it doesn't, then you need to examine yourself to be sure that you're in the faith. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to be in your house and in your word. And Lord... I pray that you will take this aspect and you will help us think about the concept of your moral law rightly. Help it teach us how we can be imitators of you in this world as Paul calls us to be in Ephesians chapter 5. Use it to help us Remind people of why it is that they need a Savior because they are guilty before a holy, righteous God. And help it impact the way we live this afternoon. Father, you have your will and you have your way with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.